This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. It's really a pleasure uh, to be able to introduce uh, Luis Aria here with us tonight. As you likely all know, Luis is a very prolific writer who is known for using his own experiences to uh, create uh, very compelling novels uh, around themes of love, loss, and triumph. Uh, he was born in Tijuana, and again, as many of you know, he has uh, many experiences here in San Diego and in Tijuana, and of course as a graduate of the university. Um, after graduating from uh, UC San Diego's Department of Literature in 1977, uh, Luis went to graduate school at the University of Colorado Boulder, he has taught expository fiction workshops at Harvard and was a writer-in-residence at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. He is currently a professor in creative writing at the University of Illinois in Chicago, and uh, you can ask him all about Naperville. Uh, we had a great conversation about it. He is um, the author of 17 books and has won numerous awards, uh, more than I could possibly list. It would take all of our time. Uh, but a few of the select ones, of course, are an American Academy of Arts and Letters Fiction Award, a finalist for the 2016 Penn Faulkner Award for the work, uh, the Water Museum. He won the Lanin Literary Art Award for his work, The Devil's Highway, which was also a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And book upon book has been selected as a, a citywide or uh, national reading program. In fact, in 2012, uh, San Diego uh, featured Into the Beautiful North as its one book, one San Diego selection. I'm really excited to hear from Luis tonight and found his most recent book, The House of Broken Angels, uh, published in March this year, incredibly moving. In fact, um, within of just a few minutes of picking it up, I was so enthralled that I read the book in one day. So it was more than I expected. Or, um, and so uh, with that, I think I'll turn it over to Luis. So here to share more about his life's journey and work is Luis. Buenas tardes, La Joya. Tijuana in the house. Muir College, class of 77. So uh, I only have a half hour. It's going to be tough for me because I, I get the spirit and I start preaching and I'm gone for hours. So I'm going to try to make it brief. Um, <clears throat> let me see. I need to tell you how life changes when you go to college, particularly UCSD, for me. And uh, you need to know a little bit about me. I'll tell you very little bit about me early on. But um, my father was Mexican. Um, he was from Sinaloa State, which of course now is famous for being the capital of Chapo Guzman's narco empire. Um, but, uh, and my mother was from New York City. She was a Woodward, a socialite. Um, yes, she was a World War II hero. She was in the Red Cross, was in the Battle of the Bulge, liberated Buchenwald, was stuck in the Siege of Bestone, was almost killed. Came back from the war and uh, had, it was very difficult for her to re-enter New York society. So some friends of hers invited her to San Francisco. And she moved to Sausalito and lived on a houseboat. And you Californians, she worked for iMagnet 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. And my mom was the jewelry, one of the jewelry buyers. And if you knew my mother, we were talking about her here. My mother was born in 1916 and had these old-fashioned ways. And she always moved her little hand in the air when she spoke. And she called me Louis Dear and Dear Boy, right? And uh, my father was from this town in Sinaloa. Um, but he was the he was the the white blue eyed one. My mother, you know, she had hazel eyes and dark hair. My father looked like Errol Flynn, right? He thought he did. Um, he had red hair, blue eyes, mustache, rosy cheeks, and I just thought you'd find this interesting. Just so you know, nothing is ever what it seems. The reason for this is that my grandmother, his mom, the matriarch of the family was named Guadalupe Murray. <laughs> so we were Mexico's genetic experiment gone awry. And uh, he was sent, he was in the Mexican army on the presidential staff, and he was sent to San Francisco to accompany a bunch of Mexican generals and politicians. And that, it, it being, you know, 1948 or 49, um, you know, the, the acceptable things were different then. And the Mexican consulate threw a party and they called I. Magnan and said, we need beautiful American women to dance with the generales. And the manager went to the jewelry buyers and said, ladies, we're going to meet the Mexicans. And off they went all together where my mother met my father and a romance ensued. And, um, and so on. And he, through various weird... Uh, permutations of history, he ended up leaving Mexico City and living with his parents on a dirt street in Tijuana, married my mother, who thought she was going to the Urrea Hacienda in old Mexico, <laughs> and found herself horrified to be in TJ. And uh, I was born there, um, and uh, we left Tijuana when I was still a little boy and went to San Diego um, but they didn't have any money or opportunity, so we settled in Logan Heights and National City. We've been talking about that before. And Logan Heights was very interesting for me. I spoke Spanish before I spoke English. And one of the reasons I became a reader was that our neighborhood was involved in, in harsh and endless ethnic war. Brown versus white versus black. Every permutation of that. Wrong corner, beat down. And I spoke Spanish before I spoke English. So I, when I came from Tijuana, I was talking like this, okay? I had a strong Tijuana accent, and I looked Irish. <laughs> so everywhere I went, they were like, why don't we beat him up? <laughs> so I was in the apartment with Mark Twain, Ray Bradbury, you know? And uh, thank God for my mom. She pushed that. So I went to Claremont High School, and uh, at the end of high school, I was the first member of my family to come to college, and I was confessing to my table mates about this. People were asking me, how did you choose UCSD? I said, I didn't choose it. My mother chose it. <laughs> my mother took a survey of the San Diego colleges, and she announced, you are not going to San Diego State, dear boy. <laughs> And I said, why not? And she said, it simply doesn't sound impressive. <laughs> I said, where am I going, Mom? I think the University of California. 
go to the cream of the crop. I was like, okay. And she exerted all her pressures and so forth, and I somehow got in here. But I, I got in, you know, through, uh, through some of the ethnic recruiting. I don't think they knew I was Irish-looking Mexican. They just knew I had a Mexican name. And I, thank God, got some economic support to come here. EEOC grants, which I used to support my mother. So I never stayed in the dorms here. I took buses from Claremont, went to school, and then would go home. I gave her all my money except for buying books. Um, And that's how we survived. My father had left because my father, I'll I'll share some Spanish with you. He was un playboy. (laughs) So mom caught him. Um, So I came here. I was the first member of my family to come to college. I came as a theater major. I wanted to either be a visual artist, an actor, or a writer. Those were my things. All I could do were the arts. All I could do were the arts. And I got here, and a series of miracles happened. One of them was being raised down here in Southern California back then, through the 60s, I never knew that anybody Latino of any kind had ever written anything. I didn't know there were any authors except for Americans, though we did hear about Cervantes, who had written this book, apparently, called Donkey Hody. And we thought it was about a donkey named Hody. And I wasn't going to read that. And I got to UCSD, and the amazing thing happened that people here actually knew that Luis Urrea was probably some kind of Latin name. Nobody had ever known at Claremont High, they thought it was French. (laughs) And I started taking English classes. And I started learning things here that I could not have imagined before. I came here in 1973. Imagine, I was a science fiction fiend looking up through the trees and seeing this building. Right? It was like 2001 A Space Odyssey. And... I started reading Latin American authors that I hadn't ever heard of. Borges, Garcia Marquez, Neruda, all these writers. It was blowing my mind completely. And I started to gravitate out of theater and go more and more to writing, to English. I wanted to do that. Now, can you imagine when my father would come to see me? He'd see me on Fridays. And he's so excited I was going to college. He says, mijo, he always smoked Palmells. And he said, mijo, what are you going to study in college? And I said, well, I'm going to be an actor, Dad. <laughs> what else are you going to study? <laughs> I'm going to write poems, Dad. He's like, <laughs> he could, but he wasn't spending any money, so he couldn't say anything about it. Is, but he thought it was a bad move. But that's what happened to me. And I, I took the classes. I learned to write. Um, I studied library science because I thought it would be kind of cool to be a librarian. Um, and that's what started happening. I joined the campus lit mag. She used to be called Helicon. And then we changed it because we were all hipsters to road work. <laughs> so, um, and... When I joined that staff, there was a mad professor down at Fourth College 
you know, none of this was ever here, right? It was all woods and like old army base or something, Quonset huts, woods. And you'd walk down the woods and there'd be a bungalow and here are these crazy writers down there. And his name was Lowry Pei. I don't know if anybody even knows Lowry Chengwu Pei. And Lowry Pei was a mad 26-year-old professor with love beads. Those days are over. (laughs) And in my first conference with him, he had a big drum in his office, and he said, do you want to play drums? I said, yeah. (laughs) So we drummed for an hour, and I was on the magazine staff. I thought, this is great. So just so you know, I mean, this all not, all of it isn't laughs and jollies, but my father being so proud that I was in college, albeit doing stuff he didn't quite approve of, though he loved to read, he was worried about me having a career. But he wanted to give me a graduation gift. And he drove home to Sinaloa my senior year over Christmas break 30 hours, 27 to 30 hours by himself in a rambler, all the way to his hometown to go to his bank. Like many of the Mexican citizens who are here working, he would send money home. And uh, he took $1,000 in U.S. fresh $20 bills. And he drove back by himself 30 hours. And he was caught by Mexican cops south of Yuma. And he died. And it was, a, it, was, it was not good. It wasn't a good death. Um, um, not to get too frank, but for various reasons, they didn't discover the money in his pocket. They stole everything. They took his shoes off him. They stole his luggage. They pried the radio out of the car. They stole. He was a musician. They took all of his music. They took his tapes, his tape player. Um, and it took him eight hours to die. But as he... They called a doctor in to check on him, and the doctor reached in his pocket. For some reason, they hadn't gone in it, and he felt the money, and he knew if it was revealed, it would be taken. So he hid the money, and he went to call an ambulance to take my father to the Yuma border so the Americans would save my father's life, and it never came. They wanted him gone. So the doctor passed this money all the way from south of Yuma, Arizona, it came with people, show what Mexico's really like, all the way to me in Tijuana, $1,000 untouched. Give it to me. The police brought my father and made me buy the corpse. They wouldn't let me bury him. So my graduation gift for UCSD buried my dad. Now, I was in finals for winter quarter when all this happened. Now, you imagine coming back to school, trying to put it together. Lowry Pay. I couldn't process this, but I had been writing so much that I wrote about it. Unbeknownst to me, Lowry Pay and the university had arranged for a famous author to come, which was Ursula K. Le Guin, the science fiction author. And Pay took my story to her. And she took me into her workshop. And one of the first things she did was bring Toni Morrison. That was terrible. I was telling some folks, Toni Mar- she wasn't even, you know, Toni Morrison yet. And she was terrifying. 
we would say something like, Ms. Morrison, blah, 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 and she would look at us like this. <laughs> yes, scary. Ursula, amazing. Ursula was tiny. Ursula smoked a pipe. <laughs> Ursula drank whiskey. I thought, this is the coolest person I've ever seen in my life. I wasn't used to this. And Pay said, we're going to Ursula's apartment. She had an apartment down at the cove that the school got her. And we went in there, and she took me under her wing. And she was my discoverer. And she bought that piece. It was my first sale ever. UCSD. So, you know, I couldn't have imagined such a thing. And uh, she changed my life. She coached me for years on how to be a writer and made connections for me. And she called herself your tia osa, your aunt the bear. And she called me Luisito. And she would give me brutal feedback on things. Um, some of it hilarious. Lot, most of it hilarious. Um, and I just wanted to tell you, I, I, I got through... Everybody was so kind, the professors, the school, I graduated. Because I was the first and because our father died, my siblings, my half-siblings came from all over Mexico. I still remember being out there, sitting on the ground in my cap and gown, looking up at my brother Octavio, holding up a newborn baby to see his brother graduate. The baby's all... And pay went back east. I, wanting to do something of value, joined a missionary crew and went to Tijuana and worked with garbage pickers and orphans and prisoners for the next several years. Um, Pei went to Harvard. I did not understand that Pei was the second in command of the expository writing program. And while I was doing this Tijuana work, which was some of the most ghastly stuff ever, I wrote some books about it so I won't ruin your supper, but it was also beautiful. Um, while that was happening, the anthology with my story came out. And all of my homies who didn't go to college, I was like their professor, we'd hang out in a Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> or a Winchell's Donuts, and we all went down to the bookstore to buy the book. They all bought one and made me sign it. Well... I had seen so many bad things that I wrote to Lowry Pei. And I said, Pei, um, I can't take this anymore. I've never been anywhere. I've only gone as far east as the Grand Canyon. And I said, you know, you have to be raised in San Diego to know that the American West is back east to us. Um, and I said, can you get me a job out there as a janitor? Could I be a custodian? Because I can't take this anymore. I don't have money. I've squandered my BA. And he wrote me back, and he said, yeah, I think I can get you a job. And I said, oh, okay, that's great. And I didn't understand what was going on. He said, but you need to send me three published pieces. And so I went to the idiots at the donut shop, and I said, dudes, the Ivy League stinks, man. Janitors have to be published poets, man. <laughs> So I wasn't necessarily a sophisticate when I left here. Um, and I was hired, and I, I went there for the first time in my life. I had never been anywhere. And it was amazing for my mother because I was finally entering her world. And, you know, the magic of that was to understand what the message had been here, which was America is my country. 
not the border, not the wall, not the fence, not the barrio, not the surfing hoedads of Claremont. Hi, man. America. America and all these beauties and responsibilities were attached to being American. Now, I just want to say before my time is up that when I left, my Mexican family was astonished at all this. They were astonished that I had come here. They were super astonished that I was going back east, though they didn't know what harbor was. He's going to harbor. He said, Oi, de veras? ¿Qué es harbor? ¿Qué es eso? Is this a school, man? Oh. And. So we had this wonderful farewell dinner. My brother Juan, who inspired House of Broken Angels, he died a couple of years ago, he got up to give a speech. And they knew I was going to teach writing, but they weren't sure what that was. And Juan said to the family, Luis's handwriting is so beautiful. He's going to go back east and teach the rich people how to write. And I was like, nah, not Palmer Method, brother. It's in something else. But the thing he said, which was a, a, a blessing that I can't even, it's funny, it's funky, but those are the best blessings, aren't they? He said to the family, today, Luis goes from frijoles to Boston baked beans. <laughs> <laughs> so if I could pick a really funky down-to-earth way to talk about what this experience was. That was it. I went from frijoles to Boston baked beans. And to be up here in the top of this library now, doing this, this is my job. This is what I do. I can't believe it. I honestly cannot believe it. And, you know, yeah, I do believe it. (laughs) But tomorrow I'll think, did that really happen? Um, you know, dreams do come true. Sometimes every dream you've got comes true. So I try to tell young folks, just don't give up. Don't lose heart because it's not easy. We think it's got to be easy to be good. We all know it wasn't easy. Everybody in here knows that. But boy, um, to know that it can happen. And now I'm seeing my youngins in my family going to college. And we have PhDs in my family. Right? We have readers in my family. And the, uh, just the last thing, and we're going to open it for comments or questions, but I just want to let you know, we just came through town on book tour for this House of Broken Angels book, and I was worried because a lot of the characters in the book are based on my relatives, and I thought, ooh, you know, what's going to... And we were at Warwick's here in La Jolla, and it was, it was every writer's dream, completely packed out, People in the street looking through the windows, and my family sitting in chairs in the front of the bookstore, and my brothers all with their old polyester suits, you know, and uh, they held up my book as if I didn't know that I'd written it, like this at me, which was really sweet, except my brother, the one who ages ago held up the baby. He's very much like my dad, you know, he's a, he's a ladies' man, so he always has a bemused girlfriend with him. So he was sitting there with this lovely Mexican woman who didn't know what the heck was going on, and he, I'm trying to read to the crowd, and he keeps saying, my girlfriend, my girlfriend. It's like, yeah. It's a glamorous life. So at the end of it anyway, 
one of my nephews who is very much and very obviously, if you know him, the template for the most outrageous character in the book. And I thought, oh, God, he's here. And, I, you know, it had, never, it had never been revealed to him, I don't think, about this. And he came up to me. And he's like, Deal, I want to talk to you. And I thought, yes, Juanito, what? And he looked around and he said, Deal, you made thousands of Americans love my dad. And this was, you know, at the height of the explosion of bad hombres and rapists and murderers stuff. And he was so moved by that. Of course, the second sentence immediately following was, so who's playing me in the movie, dog? I said, that's not you. He said, yeah, it is. American dream, right? So I just want to, you know, I want to I wanna thank the school for this. I mean, you know, and I, I had the incredible honor uh, last, I guess it was in February, to do a ballet with Stephen Shit Gear. That was so cool. I know. We, we had such a beautiful time. I hope some of you saw that. So, you know, we're keeping busy, making the dream happen. So thank you. And um, if any, thanks. If anybody has a question, are you going to do it? Are you going to be the question, Sheriff? I can, uh, I can help coordinate questions. Right on, baby. Um, there's something special about when the author reads his own work. I and so. I feel like we're friends because you've we been in friends. my ears. And um, I just want to thank you for that because thank I know you. it's an extent for an author to read their work as well. So thank, thank you. you. That, was that House of Broken Angels? You know, the thing about that book that you might find interesting, because I've done most of my books except there's one called, you heard about Into the Beautiful North, but it's about a whole bunch of 19-year-old young women, and I thought, I'm going to sound like a moron trying to act out, you know. So they got some woman from a soap opera, and fans don't like it because she can't cuss in Spanish. (laughs) But but, uh, what was funny about that recording was we did the entire novel in two days. I just went into some weird trend because it so lived, you know, it was my brother's death. Like all that stuff about them lying in bed talking, that was my brother and me. And that insane Mexican Finnegan's Wake birthday party, that was all true. That was my brother's farewell birthday party. Yeah. And uh, yeah, thank you. But I don't know what happened. I just started going and they just stopped. They edit you very carefully, but they just stopped finally. And I was just like, oh. it was it was a it was a, a, a fugue state perhaps. I don't know what happened because uh, Hummingbird's daughter took me forty hours in the studio, and I thought I'm never doing this again. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. So clearly, since I'm the chancellor, I'm going to ask you a question about UCSD. In yes, any of your books, did you take anything from your UCSD experience, like campus experience? and come to life, make it come to life in your books? Oh, yeah, so many things. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what? Yeah, friendships, conversations, you know, all the things Le Guin taught me. To me, those were UCSD things. Um, you know, Ursula told me I was a callow boy, and it was time for me to study feminism, and I thought... <laughs> but I did. Um, you know, my, the, the depth and extent of reading... Without things in UCSD, I wouldn't have known about magical realism, you know. I knew about fantasy and science fiction, 
But it's one thing to have a UFO with a tentacled creature come out and another, you know, to do what Garcia Marquez did. And uh, things like that, you know, hundreds of things, unending things. Um, and it's been a strange kind of accident of fate that I've ended up in universities. You know, it's funny that I, that's, that's, I'm full professor now. And, you know, my college now is trying to, for some reason, keep me because they like me publishing books. So they keep, you know, they give me weird little medals and stuff. Why, you got a job, Mr. Chancellor? Um, you know, it's, it's funny. We, we ended up in Chicago, not my dream. Um, because they offered tenure if I'd moved there. I was, believe it or not, in Louisiana. I was writer-in-residence at the University of Lafayette, living in Cajun country, because Ernest Gaines had gotten the MacArthur grant, and he immediately went to Paris, wives move, and they needed a writer, and they called me, and I, I needed some money, so I, we went. Um, so we got to Chicago at, uh, on tenure, but I was going to come back west. My wife and I are both Westerners. She was from San Diego originally as well, but raised in Seattle. And so we were always coming west, and it never happened. So we've been, not yet. Yes, it's going to happen, apparently. But um, so we've, we just put our youngest daughter in college. It's our third child going to college because I type. I think that's amazing. American dream again. Um, and uh, so we, we are blessed. We didn't think we'd be blessed, but we're blessed with the empty nest. We do whatever we want. Have a, a little dog and us. It's very nice. Um, so, yeah, we're starting to think about what are our options in life. And it's going to be hard to leave Chicago because our kids are diehard Illinoisans. Um, you know, the joke in Illinois is, it's annoying and it makes you ill. That's why it's called Illinois. That's what they say about it. But um, I like it there. But I'm, I'm starting to understand that I'm entering a phase of life where I could actually probably have a getaway. I could have a pl- live in two places. So, you know, I come down here a couple of borders if you want. But, but yeah, I would love to come back home. I really would. So do you read, have, have you read most of your books or I mean are they recorded <laughs> I mean are they on tape on tape are they recorded by you um, I did uh, I did Hummingbird's Daughter Queen of America The Devil's Highway um, Water Museum and Broken Angels so a lot of them and then somebody else it's just else so did. much more meaningful with well, you, you reading it it's just thank incredible a Thank wonderful, you. wonderful you know, experience. One of my, one of, I never look at the Googles on me or whatever, the Amazon stuff, and I, I won't watch videos of myself, none of that stuff. I can't take it. But my wife does, and she said, you got the best rotten review. This is great. And I said, what? I got a, really, I got a bad review? And she said, it's wonderful. This woman said that she mailed the book back after reading about four pages because it was so trashy. And I thought... I always wanted to write a trashy book. Thank you. Uh, you're speaking to us um, 
as Americans, can you uh, pretend that we are a Mexican audience and let us hear what you would sound like in Spanish? Ah, pues claro, mis camaradas, aquí nomás. Platicando con la gente, pues, hombre. I love Spanish. Muy bien, gracias. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, people don't know. And sometimes, especially, you know, with our brothers in ICE and so forth, um, people, are, people are a little jumpy. And uh, we had this wonderful experience. There's a, the, the place, the Naperville where we live is a very red town, right? Very, still Bush Cheney kind of place. And um, so the people who are undocumented there are pretty panicky all the time. And there's a pancake restaurant we used to like to go to, really I imaginatively named Pancake Restaurant. That's the name of it. <laughs> and businessmen go there for breakfast before going to their banks and their law offices and so forth. And there's a busboy in there, this little guy who looks like some sort of Aztec warrior climbed out of a carving. He's got, you know, he's indigenous, clearly. He's about 4'6", long black ponytail, ferocious, and he's covered in tattoos on his arms, but they're all heavy metal tattoos, you know? <laughs> Satan! <laughs> and he's always bussing, and I was watching him, and I said, Cindy, that guy is Mexican. And she said, how do you know? I was like, come on. <laughs> so he went by, and I said, hola, compadre, ¿cómo estás? And he stopped, and he looked at me with his eyes, and I said, no, I'm not Border Patrol. <laughs> oh, I said, I'm from Tijuana. Really? And now we can't eat there anymore because he won't let us eat. He comes over, hey, hey, how you doing? <laughs> but his story was so touching to me. And again, you know, talk about frijoles, the baked beans. This guy came to the United States because his parents were retired and ill and no, way to, no one taking care of them. He wanted to be a heavy metal guitar hero. And he came to the United States, and he's a straight-edge guy, so though he has devil tats, he's never had a drink. He doesn't smoke, doesn't do drugs, right? Yet he got throat cancer. And he had to bicycle six miles to this restaurant and back. And he was sending all the money home. Now, this gives me hope for America. The waitress started telling all these businessmen about this. And they took up a collection and paid for his surgery and saved his life. They forgot what they think about illegal immigration. There was a human being, and they saved him. And then they bought him a bike. And I saw him afterwards, and I said, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm staying right here because I owe them service. And I thought, yeah, we can, you know. I spend most of my time in front of strangers, and I've realized we miss each other. We talk large, we insult each other, we fight each other. There's all this outrage. But I think Americans kind of wish they could all be Americans again. So I kind of offer myself up for it, you know. But I love doing it in Spanish. I love doing it in Spanish. It's great. But it's, it's partially great for the shock value. What's up, homie? What's up? ¿Cómo estás? Pues aquí nomás. I wanted to say how much um, of an inspiration you are um, to me. You know, me. Coming from City Heights, you know, knowing right how it is in the hood. It's awesome knowing that, um, you know, there's people out there who come from, you know, the hood and the ghetto and make it up to the eighth floor on Geisel's Library. It's, it's insane. <laughs> um, yeah, I just want to thank you so much. 
over and over again, you're going to see those things that you don't think are possible. And it's really on us to, to, to ride them as far as we can, you know, learn all we can. I know you're, you're interested in studies that I don't even begin to understand. But, uh, you know, this is good. You know, your life will be better. Gracias. Ah, no, a ti, loco. Yeah. You know, I want to tell you something, something funny about Logan Heights. So they, you know, they finally got a, a public library, and they were like, you're the homeboy, man. You want to you come back here and do the first reading. And I was telling Cindy and our daughter, Chayo, Rosario Teresa, you know, I was going all folkloric with her. Um, and I was telling them, yeah, you know, when I was a kid, Mean Streets, Logan Heights, man, it's such a badass. Yeah, it was tough, violent, you know, which it was. But when we got there, they have Starbucks now. And there are people jogging with vainty drinks. And my daughter says, really bad, Dad. And you know what I said to her? This is so lame. I said, when I was a kid, if you were running, it was because cops were chasing you. Life has changed, man. And my apartments, I say, where do you see my apartment block? And now it's all like Miami colors with all kinds of... It's, it's all gone high scale. I was so, I was, I was kind of sad. Yes. I just would like you maybe to speak a little bit more about why we need the humanities. We're dying for the lack of it. And, you know, you think, oh, science is what will save nature. It's having a functioning imagination, heart, soul, and mind that will save the physical earth. Science, yes, of course, but you have to have the vision to understand what's happening and not just believe insane propaganda on the radio. Um, you have to read. You have to experience these things. You have to find grace in the world, and I don't know that you can find grace in the world without some form of the humanities. For me, you know, and by the way, my nephew didn't say I made him like his dad. He liked his dad. Yeah. I made you like his dad. That's the message. That is the message that we're talking about. And, um, you know, uh, I, I, I go out a lot for the NEA, for the National Big Read. We were talking about it earlier today with some folks. And, um, you know, the Big Read program was originally American classics and some British classics. It was, you know, Poe and Twain and Harper Lee and the kids just, don't like to read anymore. So they especially didn't want to read that stuff. And so one year they asked me, would you be willing to be one of the authors in the Big Read program? And at first I thought, wow, I'm a star. And I thought, oh no, the other ones are all dead. <laughs> they wanted a live body. But they very much wanted somebody to talk to Latino kids specifically to all kids in general. But that book that they picked, thank God, had gotten a citation as the best, the rainbow citation for the American Library Association for the best book for young gay and lesbian and, you know, readers. And so it became this incredible mission to go. I go to school after school after school where hundreds of what I consider my kids show up, and they're ashamed. They're embarrassed. They're afraid, they don't believe, they don't know why they're in school. 
And so my job is to just begin by telling them how beautiful and sacred their culture is. Because they're like, get out of here, man. And oddly enough, I found the key in Aspen of all places. Because in Aspen, ICE raided Aspen and took all brown faces off the street. And all those, you know, Kevin Costner was like, who's going to make my hamburger? (laughs) Everything shut down. And they asked me, say, can you come talk to this? So I did. And if you could see it, you political science folks, there's a town down the mountain called Carbondale, where all the Mexicanos live. And every morning before dawn, there's this huge exodus up there to take care of, you know, the skiers and stuff. And at night, they all go home. And so I went to those schools, and I had this issue. Why? Why should we read, man? Why should we read? So I started talking about culture. And I was going as fast as I could because I couldn't think of anything to engage these kids because they weren't buying anything. And I finally said, don't you understand? If you're not reading, if you're not listening to good music, if you're not going to theater or watching good movies, you know, instead of Fast and the Furious all the time, you're not going to understand about yourself. Like, like, what about us? And I said, you're from a sacred culture. You're holy. You're sacred. They're like, God, because they were tough kids. And I said, you don't know anything, man. What about tortillas? I'm thinking fast now, you know. Like, tortillas? What are you talking about? I said, tortillas. You know they're sacred, right? What? I said, that's been unchanged for over 10,000 years. It's been a perfect food for 10,000 years. They're actually called Tlaxcali. They're like, huh? I said, right. And those ladies that make them, they're Tlaxcaltines. And it's round because it's the sun. And that's the flesh of the earth, which is the corn. And after corn, we are the flesh of the sun. Don't you know that? They're like, no. (laughs) And then I said, what about this? And they all started laughing. (laughs) Yeah, man. I said, yeah, man. You know that's sacred, right? They're like, no, it ain't. I said, yeah. It is how many women have done this in, say, 11,000 years, do you figure? 100 million? 200 million? A billion women every morning? And you know there's a few million men doing it? And what does this mean? Going to make tacos? I said, no. It means every time they did that, they prayed for you. Every pat was a pray for your future that you would, you know, understand your sacred. And that was the moment, because then the tough guys were like, damn, man. <laughs> you know, and I don't know that you can do that without, without the arts, without literature, without language, that you can get things across to people, you know. And I, I, I'm pretty serious about this. And people always ask me, why do you write about borders? And I say, I don't care about the border. I don't care about the Tijuana Wall, really. I care about the border that's in here. We're all separated from each other. Live in Chicago for a little while and see how white students respond if you have half a black class. African-American kids on this side, white kids over here. Uncomfortable. No, you've got to break that up. Young woman in a hijab comes in. See what happens to her. A big, empty circle around her. You've got to break that up. And you've got to use the art the words, the feelings. And I think without this thing, the arts, where's the feeling? 
Ursula Le Guin told me, it's going to be in Triton Magazine, I think, because that's what the guy told me, and I know, so I know, I know, it's my favorite quote. She said, writers are the raw nerve of the universe. Everybody in this world is forgetting what it means to feel. We have to go out and feel for them and come back and tell them what it felt like because we've lost our culture. We've lost our elders. We don't listen. We don't have a morning campfire to talk about our dreams and have an older person say, you know what that means? It's gone. So we have to go out and feel it for them. And, you know, that's why some of my brethren who come see you will have had six or seven highballs first because <laughs> they've been feeling too much. But, you know, I, so I, to me, it's, it's, it's a spiritual calling, which I, I would say many of my friends would disagree with, but I, I know from where I come from what it means. And stardom lasts a minute, but, you know, if you can touch a heart or change a life, it, it'll go on. Without you, I think. I think we have time for maybe one more question. There's somebody right here. Two. Okay, two questions. Yeah, he's yes, the sir. boss. <laughs> I'm not from Tijuana, but I got my start farming in Nicaragua. Oh, really? And uh, spent over 60 years doing things in Latin America. And... Uh, one of the things that bothers me um, as much as anything is the extent to which uh, U.S. drug appetites have oh, corrupted yes. Latin America. And there was a very interesting article in today's Wall Street Journal. I haven't read it completely, but I've scanned it, uh, talking about the, the uh, murder rate in Latin America, in Honduras, Salvador, uh, Venezuela. Mexico, <clears throat> awful. I hope you're right about that. And the appetites of the U.S. that have done so oh, much yes. to corrupt that. Yeah, I, I, I write about stuff like that a lot. My first book about that stuff was 25 years ago. And I've been telling America the same damn story for 25 years, waiting for somebody to listen. So, yeah. And I, I actually, weirdly enough accidentally won an Edgar Award for Best Mystery because I wrote a story about the drug trade. Isn't that weird? Best short story. I was so embarrassed because I was with real mystery writers, and then I won it, and I thought, oh, no. I have to go up there and accept their award, you know. And uh, Lee Child, you know, Lee Child writes the reacher. He was the MC, And the, it's, it's, it's a bust of Edgar Allan Poe. It looks like you bought it in Tijuana. This is cheesy. And... Lee Child, my dream, comes up to me and he says, be careful with that because the heads break off. <laughs> and I broke the head off on the airplane. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's a terrible thing. And um, I, I've done a lot of stuff to try to do my part to ameliorate the situation, but there's nothing we can do. People ask me all the time, and I, I, I'm on NPR a lot, and people ask me that, and I say, you know, what can we do? And I say, stop using cocaine, man. How about that? You know, legalize marijuana. Every time another state legalizes marijuana, it knocks out, you know, some barriers that, I mean, some, some stanchions that they have holding them up. Um, I've never used drugs, but I think, you know, whatever, whatever can change the supply and demand situation. We sell thousands of guns illegally into Mexico. Stop sending guns to Mexico. 
Stop buying drugs. Things will shift. Things will change. I've been lucky enough to tour uh, Colombia several times. And uh, Colombia is awesome. It's delightful. People are still scared to go there, but it's an amazing place. And it's, it's sort of in the post-narco life now. And, uh, you know, their solution was draconian. I mean, they, they killed a lot of bad guys. And I hope that doesn't have to happen. But I don't think there's any way to reach the humanity of some of the people in that trade. It's really hard. Like, I can't imagine having a poetry workshop with some sicarios, you know? I don't think so. I don't think so. So I don't know what the answer is, but it is supply and demand. No question. I wonder if you could speak to the craft of blurring the lines between memoir and fictional narrative, because it seems that you straddle that line very, very well, and how you can prevent revealing too much of yourself, if, you, if that's even a goal. That's the issue, isn't it? Especially with me, because I started out wanting to be a poet, then I wanted to be the world's coolest sci-fi writer, then I want, you know, I didn't even think about nonfiction, really, but I was sort of hit over the head by it. Reading Joan Didion, I thought, what? And, uh, you know, on the macho side, Edward Abbey, I just, I, I, was, I was flabbergasted by it. And I wanted to be, being a poor boy, even here, I wanted to be Stephen King, <laughs> right? Or Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin, I would take that. <laughs> um, and uh, after my dad's death, particularly, I never thought about writing witness work. And uh, those of you who know older texts, I studied the children of Sanchez here, Oscar Lewis. And if anybody hasn't read that, you should read it because it's still incredibly timely, even though it's from the 50s, about poverty in Mexico and trying to survive. Um, so it was really on my mind. And when I started doing the work in Tijuana with the poor, I probably went because I wanted to feel saintly or something. Um, but I spent a lot of years there and then went from a ranch in Valle de las Palmas basically to Boston. And I was so shocked. And uh, I kind of made a deal with God. So I always tell young writers, don't make a deal with God. That's a really bad plan. <laughs> Because God's got a whole different schedule than you do. And uh, I said, I will put all my desires, basically, universe, aside to tell the story of those people. It became an obsession. And uh, it, it was rejected 10 years. 10 straight years. And you have to be a little crazy, right, to keep going. I always tell my writing students, in my workshops, writing rule number one, wear the bastards down. Just keep coming back. Ten years. Um, and I came back here to San Diego in 1990. My mother had died, and I went to work for the reader. Uh-huh. I called the reader, and I said, you need a copy editor? And they're like, no, man, we need writers. Like, We're trying to rip 200 pages a week in San Diego. We need writers. And I said, oh, I'm a good writer. And they said, have anything about Tijuana? <laughs> I said, I just happen to have a book here. And that's what happened. That's what really kicked my career off, of all things, the San Diego Reader. But that issue, you know, how there are things that are memoiry, there are things that are my participatory nonfiction stuff, which I think is really open to my emotions and thoughts and 
memories, but something like the Devil's Highway, which so much was at stake. So many people had died. Um, I, I kind of made it a rule not to have my own adventures in it. I thought that would be kind of a sin because there were some wild adventures. You know, at one point, kind of talking back to your question, I have a lawyer friend in Tucson, and we were investigating the region, and we actually had a car crash with Mexican cocaine smugglers. He drove into their car and blew it apart, and they had guns. And I thought, you know, staying in Naperville, Illinois, and gardening is such a great thing to do. <laughs> um, and I, but I didn't want to put it in the book because it wasn't about me. Then 15 years later, when we did a, you know, an anniversary, then I, I, I put in afterward finally. So it's just, you know, you have your own ethics you have to watch. You know, you don't want to be James Fry and get caught by Oprah lying about everything, right? He was, a, he, was a, he was a horrible heroin addict who was put in prison for heroin. Well, no, he had a toothache and he went to the dentist, but he extrapolated. You can't do that. Um, and in the fiction, uh, I find myself trying to bear witness that way too. And the thing about the House of Broken Angels is that when my brother died, it came on me like an avalanche. I was 400 pages into a World War II historical novel, and I had to write about my brother's passing instead. And it was agony. I, I've never suffered so much to write a book. Um, and it became funnier and funnier, which I thought was really interesting. I'm crying, and it's funny. Um, but uh, I realized as the tone got darker, I got madder. And to me, humor is kind of a healing thing to bring people closer. And I thought, how can I tell these stories unless they're real to me? And it didn't get any realer than my own family to me. So I fictionalized stuff, and there are things that didn't happen. But that's really straddling the line. I would have never written a nonfiction book. But I could use these masses of input to create fiction with it. So I think it's, it's up to your own, your own ethics, you know, as a composer. Um, I talked about this with Stephen Schick before, but that book particularly was my symphony. And I was thinking, you, you classical music fans, um, I, I listen to loud rock and roll, but I like classical music too. And there's a, a, a piece by Respighi called The Fountains of Rome. And if you listen to it, you'll see that it's the structure of the book. There's all this tumult, hubbub, drama, building, lulls, and then the end of the piece of music is how I wrote the end of my book. The, the orchestra slowly steps down through chords, down to silence, and in the distance, a single church bell is tolling. And that's why there's a coda in the book. Nobody knows that, except you. <laughs> so I think you just have to, you have to choose according to your own rules and don't violate those rules because if I violate the rules I have set for myself I know it I'm miserable and sooner or later I throw it away because I realize I did I don't know if that answers you but thank you all right thank you